0: Hello, controller. Are you ready to begin?
1: All engines are started.
2: That looks really good.
1: So we'd like it to uh, stir up your cryo tank. Oh,
2: oh, wow, it's going up so slowly.
1: The state of the space flyer during the flight is being observed with the
3: help of radio, telemetric, and television devices.
4: Station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event?
5: Yes, I'm all
0: set, yeah.
2: Welcome to a new year of space boffins with Sue Nelson and Richard Hollingham. We're
0: in partnership with the Naked Scientists, and this time we're in the library of the British Interplanetary Society in central London, which is just Fantastic. Pretty small, but just from where I'm sitting, I can see books on Mars terraforming, space elevators, there's a Jupiter overflow box, <laughs> heaven knows what that's all about, Unless Apollo, shuttle, Rich, there's art. It's down great. at the bottom
2: here, oh my God. space debris. Space
0: debris, <laughs> right at the bottom in the corner, <laughs> gathering yes. dust.
2: Coming up, we'll hear from astronaut Ron Garan about his new space tourism venture and the challenge of Donald Trump. And we also have the latest on Hubble's replacement, the James Webb Space Telescope and plans for a new type of hypersonic space plane, or spacecraft as I think he refers to it constantly, made in Australia, as well as commemorating the Apollo 1 fire.
0: Well our guest here is BBC TV presenter, broadcaster, writer, documentary maker, uh, space geek, Dallas Campbell. Hi. Hello. Well, that's a list. You're that's actually,
2: a list. Yeah, it's great. And an actor. I couldn't on. believe come, it come, when come. I saw that you were originally an actor. Yeah, well,
0: that's where I started. Yeah. I started life as an actor. Who who knew? <laughs> who knew that? There's not many people. I had a fairly sparkle-free acting career. <laughs> we should explain. <laughs> a... we, we've not actually brought you here you have been here we've come yeah, to I know, you you've I been know. hanging out in this library i had this brilliant idea that if i just spent enough time in this library i would just absorb via o- osmosis <laughs> all these books without actually having to read any of them um does, does, do you think anyone's read all the, i mean it's the most extraordinary place this place the british um, interplanetary society has been going since the 1930s so the whole history of spaceflight flight is encapsulated in these walls. It's the most brilliant And
2: place. lovely history as well with Sir Arthur Clarke being yeah. one of its, I think, either first or first president, one of the first presidents.
0: Absolutely, and it's still going strong. And it's, it, you know, if you get a chance to come down here, if you're interested in space, which you are, because you're listening to this podcast, <laughs> yeah. you should immediately come in and have a little um, scout around the library. And it, exactly as you say, you, you, you scan the walls and it, you can't... Because you go, oh, I've got to read that. one. Right- oh, no, I've got to read that. I have right- to confess, like you, I've come in here to do research spent a day here researching no a specific mission and done nothing because I, I've just been looking at something got diverted. Me too. I I was writing about Von Braun and ended up reading a book about space sex. <laughs> and like and have it has well, it about happened. Hair? Yeah, I sh- <laughs> yeah, over there okay. there's a book. And basically the big question is, has anyone done this in space? And, of course, I had to read the entire thing cover to cover, and I, I won't give the
2: answer There away. are rumours. I've heard lots of rumours. I'm not going to say anything. In case now, how, did I get this podcast, how did this
0: podcast go so <laughs> off track <laughs> well, so quickly? The ridiculous thing about the book... The ridiculous thing about it is, it's is just a book of all rumours, oh. there's, there's unsubstantiated rumours. It's, it's quite ludicrous, but uh, but distracting. So
2: you're writing a book about space, but not SpaceX.
0: Well, I might chuck a chapter in. Having re- having read this, I mean, the, yeah, the book I'm writing is basically trying to condense every volume in this library into one slim, usable volume. It's kind of a, a you know, it's under the guise of a, of a guide to going into space, but it's, I suppose, the slightly more esoteric slightly less well-known stories um, that have been forgotten or discarded. Or... But
2: that's good because a lot of space fans know a lot about the history and the beauty of it is, is when you do find something that's little known or that um, had never been known, a little a little fact, a little snippet. Yeah, well, I,
0: my worry is that I find these things thinking I've just found them, thinking I have this brand new knowledge. <laughs> and of course, there's, you know, hundreds of space geeks who are going to be ba- bashing my door, telling oh, me I've got yeah, it wrong. But... And I knew that a long time ago. But we always want to Read it again. Well, I think that's the thing. It's, I mean, yes, exactly. So this is what I'm hoping. I think a general audience who are perhaps slightly less obsessive about space will, in, will enjoy it. And hopefully the, the more knowledgeable people, like your,
2: like your good selves, who will be able to go, <laughs> well, I knew that, of course,
0: will enjoy reading it for the second time.
2: Right, well, let's go on to our first subject. Um, I think this is something that every space geek will, will know something about it, but hopefully there will be something new in this as well. It's about the, um, the Hubble Space Telescope and its uh, successor, basically. Now, Hubble has transformed our view of the universe and astronomers are hoping that the James Webb Space Telescope We'll do the same.
0: Well, over the coming months, all the components for this new space observatory will be coming together for final testing before launch in 2018. And one of those instruments is MIRI, the Mid-Infrared Instrument. Its principal investigator is Gillian Wright, director of the UK Astronomy Technology Centre in Edinburgh. Well, I met up with her recently at the Rutherford Appleton Laboratory in Oxfordshire, where she told me just how big this new telescope is going to be.
5: It's much bigger than Hubble. It has a six and a half metre primary mirror on the telescope and it's cooled. So unlike Hubble, James Webb is very cold and it's cooled using a big sunshade. And the sunshade's about the size of a tennis court. So this is a really huge telescope that we're going to be putting into space. And because it's a cold telescope, JWST can look at light that Hubble can't see so what we one of the things we will get from JWST is stunning images but in a different light and that will tell us new things about the universe
0: so your instrument is is MIRI what does that do how, how important is that
5: MIRI is one of the uh, very important Instruments on the James Webb Space Telescope, not only because it will take these stunning pictures in different light from what we've been able to do with Hubble, but also because we have put on, Mary, two other features. One is called a coronagraph, and a coronagraph can block the light from a star, and that means we will be able to use Mary to look at planets, to take images of planets that are very close to their stars so these would be planets orbiting stars in the same way our earth orbits the sun but in a completely different solar system and where we've found lots of these kinds of planets now but we don't know very much about them and MIRI will provide a really unique opportunity to study them.
0: So this means for the first time we'll actually be able to see these planets so spacecraft like Kepler have figured out that they're there but you'll actually be able to see them.
5: Yes, we'll be able to take direct images of the planet. So for the first time we'll actually have a picture of the planet and we will also be able to take spectra. So we'll be able to look at some of what the planet is made up of by looking at the chemical signatures from the light of the planet.
0: Now it's fair to say over the years that the James Webb Space Telescope has been delayed and has gone vastly over budget, but what stage is it at now?
5: Now we're really at the final race towards launch. So the telescope is built and all ready. The instruments have all been tested and tested again. So we're really now putting the whole mission together in the final stages of testing and integration. It's quite and, exciting.
0: And, and unlike Hubble, if something's wrong, you can't fix it once it's in space. Hubble you had the shuttle could go up and fix it. You can't with this. It's got to be right first time.
5: That's right. It's got to be right first time. So we've had uh, three years at the Goddard Space Flight Centre testing the instruments and putting the telescope together and testing it separately. Early in 2017, we will be going to the Johnson Space Flight Centre where we will be doing an integrated optical test of how the instruments together with the telescope perform and that's in a massive um, test chamber at Johnson that was originally used to test Apollo.
0: So this has been shipped all around the world. It's gone different bits, so you had your part, i suppose conceived in scotland partly built and tested here at the rutherford appleton laboratory okay. it's gone off to the the states you've got bits from all over the states i've seen the mirrors and uh, ball aerospace in boulder colorado now it's heading off to uh, to houston for for a final test
5: that's right and and then and then after that it'll be shipping to kuru for the launch
0: Are you anxious at any point? I mean, it's it's been such a long journey. Uh, Would the launch be the final?
5: (sighs) I will be really terrified when it launches. I, I think there's no other way of saying it. I've spent years and years and years of my career working to make this thing happen, and it all comes together in that moment of launch. Either it happens or it doesn't. It's really I'm going to be really emotional and very scared, I think.
2: Gillian Wright, the principal investigator for MIRI, one of the main instruments for the James Webb Space Telescope. And Dallas, she actually did say, but I, I edited this bit out, when she said she did have complete faith that her engineers have got it right, but obviously the launch, that's always the worrying part. Well,
0: as we as we've seen over the years, you know sometimes things go wrong, Uh, and yeah, I I can imagine being an engineer on that particular telescope because it, it is so advanced, and I imagine so fragile. I mean, the actual instruments on it, the mirrors, those great big sort of hexagonal mirrors that we see, all folded up. Man, I, I, don't think I, I don't think I would be there if I worked, worked on it to, to watch the launch. I mentioned in that I'd been to see the mirrors. So yeah. I'd, we'd had a piece on Space Buffins a year or so back, maybe 18 months or so back, seeing the mirrors at Ball Aerospace. Mm. And the effort they're putting into to those, there was a clean room. So, yeah. you know, big white room where you put all the gear on and respirator and all the rest of it. And then there was a clean room. And then inside that was a tent. And that's where the mirrors were. So they're really taking care this time because you can't fix it. No, absolutely not. I mean, and also if you think about where Hubble is, exactly as you were saying, you could take a shuttle there. But not only do we not have a shuttle, it's so much further out than the James Webb. I mean, you wouldn't even if we did have a shuttle, you wouldn't be able to do it. So it's a heck of a. Well, it's not a gamble. I mean, obviously they're working incredibly hard to to get it right. But even so, there'll be a lot of fingers crossed. I think.
2: Now, do does uh, pictures of. The universe in infrared excites you as much as the beautiful well, Hubble images. I suspect not.
0: Well, this is, the, this, is the, this is the great... Well, it's not a problem, but this is the... I think, you know, the Hubble deep field, ultra deep field image that just has wowed an entire generation of astronomers and people interested in this and school children across the world when we, we see these points of light as galaxies. But I think actually the interesting thing in that interview was her talking about being able to see... Exoplanets, Because exoplanets, I think, are going to be the things that are going to inspire and excite uh, people and and children for the next generations. And especially being able to see spectra, being able to see the chemical composition of a planet and an atmosphere. You can imagine the news breaking, my goodness, there's lots of oxygen, for example, which might mean one thing, or methane, which might mean one thing. I think that will be very exciting. I mean, that was definitely the point in the interview. I didn't know that before I did the, that interview, and that was the point where I thought, "Wow, you're actually going to be see planets, not just suppose that yes. they are there. Actually, see planets." Exactly. I think that's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, of, and it, 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 it's, we're not going to get the wonderful pictures that we saw in Hubble. I get, but I actually, uh, to be honest, I'm not quite sure what we will see. I mean, we'll see infrared. Well,
2: infrared pictures. images of the sun, for instance, are rather beautiful. Yes. So I think they will be stunning images. Yeah. Just in a different, different way. Yes, exactly, exactly.
0: No. And um but yes, the launch will be nerve-wracking, but I think we we think it's going up on Ariane, is that I think I could be wrong. It's one of those <laughs> you know, I, I said it just now with, have you with been every a, confidence yeah. that I'm right. <laughs> I could just look it up in a sec. We could it we'll the, the, the information it up in will be here in this room somewhere. Yeah, we'll have a look. Well yeah. if it's
2: Kuru, it can only be a Soyuz. Yeah, but it's an American project. So
0: I'm now having second thoughts because it's an American project. Look, well look it up.
3: We'll look it we'll, up. We'll come back to you. Some, yeah. some people know and uh,
0: send you an email, uh, or an angry tweet. Now, this month marks the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 1 fire. On January the twenty seventh, 1967, astronauts Gus Grissom, Ed White and Roger Chaffee were sealed inside their Apollo 1 capsule on the launch pad at Cape Canaveral, taking part in a countdown simulation for the new spacecraft five and a half hours in the test was not going well with all sorts of communications difficulties with mission control Jerry Griffin guidance navigation and control systems officer, later a flight director for Apollo, was at
3: his console in Houston. They had problem all day long with communications between the command module that grew in in the Cape and couldn't talk and uh, I remember Gus Grissom got very exasperated and he was really man and uh, and something uh, they said well let's stop a second and let's see if we can uh, fix the calm uh, and we all stood up and most people went to take a break and uh, I stayed for some reason I, I left my headset on and I heard a noise and then and several of us had our headsets on and heard a noise kind of a static and then a quiet period for a second and then heard the word fire and uh from the crew and uh that was about all and so i in fact i yelled at a couple guys hey there's something going on uh didn't when i said fire i thought it might have been a, a pad fire down on the ground or something and uh, and as one thing led to another they brought came back in of course and uh And it took us several minutes to figure out that there had been a fire in the spacecraft. And they were headed up to, you know, get them out. And, of course, they got there and they they were dead. Jerry
0: Griffin in Mission Control when fire killed Gus Grissom, Ed White and Roger Chaffee. Now, Dallas, I mean, there were all sorts of problems with Apollo 1. It had this oxygen atmosphere mm. in it. It had loose wires, flammable materials. There was a door that didn't hatch, didn't open properly.
2: It opened inwards and, rather than outwards. And you needed outwards. a special bar. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. was, it, was just, it, it took a long time. All
0: these things in retrospect seem just, just daft. But it possibly helped save the Apollo program because all these things could have gone wrong in space. Yeah no exactly it's I mean it was such a tragic thing I think I think particularly with the, with Gus Grisham, obviously who was one of the, the Mercury Seven had this real sort of iconic status he was one of the you know one of these second but, American but, in space second I think, American yeah. uh, was he yes he was yeah. yeah I mean and 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 had that sort of hero status and obviously you're against the white hot pace of this of this dictum that we have to get men on the moon by the end of the decade so you can imagine what it would have been like. Just from a, a, a the practical point of view as well, but to, to lose three people, not even in flight, but actually in a rehearsal, is pretty, pretty brutal.
2: Obviously, they did a post-mortem on the, on the event in terms of what went wrong. And as you as you, you, you implied, but there was actually, there was so much. It wasn't just one thing that went wrong. And you can read this report on the NASA website. And one of the things that really surprised me on reading it was that Within 25 seconds, the fire had consumed all the oxygen in the capsule.
0: That's ridiculous. Yeah, I mean that's. I mean that's. I mean you you can't quite conceive how awful. You know what a what an awful way to go. I mean, really, really.
2: But it also also brought out that quality control wasn't as good. Yeah, that the materials that they used didn't quite, well, weren't as good as they should be but who was it well, that said, was it John Glenn who said that, you know, you're sitting on top of a rocket knowing that every every I think we mentioned this in the last podcast, didn't we that every component was uh, made by the lowest bidder Well <laughs> it, well, it, well, that,
0: but also it was the, the Carl Sagan thing at the time when saying you know, this, this impossible task is going to happen within a decade you know, with materials not yet invented, with things that we don't know how to do it, you're not You don't get it right first time when you're doing big projects like Apollo or whatever it is. You don't get it right first time. It's a a learning process and things happen. And Obviously, we saw that with with Virgin Galactic, you know, a couple of years ago and and any big new project. These these things happen. Um, But it was a, I mean, it was a tragedy. I mean, awful. Well, I was just going to say that actually with you mentioned the Virgin Galactic, one of the most recent disasters in space we've got had columbia challenger yeah. uh, the first soyuz um one of the early soyuz lost lost the That's crew right. but actually it, it's almost amazing when you think about these i mean they're all tragedy all awful things have always been learned from these but when you think of what's involved you always think it's amazing that more people haven't been injured I or know, killed. I know, I know, exactly. I mean, I don't... What is the number of people who've been killed? I think
2: it's 17? It it's,
0: it's actually not very many, no. considering the number of missions. Because oh, uh, I mean,
2: over 500 people have been into space. Exactly.
0: They? It's why, I mean, I find a vehicle <laughs> like... The, the Soyuz launch vehicle, I think, is such an extraordinary vehicle. I mean, that is basically the R7 intercontinental ballistic missile from the 1950s, with a little bit of adaptation, but not much. It is agricultural in its basicness. And actually, when you're sending people into space on a regular basis um, to the International Space Station, you don't want cutting edge. You just want to know it works. And Which actual... is
2: why Mir and uh, Soyuz yeah. are, are so loved by Absolutely. astronauts. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here.
0: I mean, that, that particular Soyuz disaster, that first Soyuz, I mean, they had a, 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 an explosive decompression. And it was they weren't actually wearing emergency spacesuits at the time. And since then, every crew now wears the Sokol space spacesuits en route because of that. So... You know, If you do have these tragic accidents, hopefully um, you learn from them and you move on and they don't happen again. But, you know, we see people, you know, obviously SpaceX, not with humans on board, luckily, but you know, even with their rocket, they have had a, a, a malfunction last year, problems in, in developing. You don't get it right first time. You don't just go from nothing to the moon in one go. There's lots of steps on the way. And you were at Tim Peake's launch. I yeah. was in mission control doing the, the ESA commentary, you were doing the, the work oh, right. for the BBC. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I've done quite a few of these commentaries for for human launches to the space station, even in the Soyuz, even doing that, I am nervous for the crew. It's one thing, like you say, for a SpaceX to blow up on the launch pad. Well it's it's terrible but no one's been yes. injured or killed. When there are three people at the top of that spacecraft, there is a palpable tension. Yeah. It's quite interesting, actually. The thing that I actually, one of the interesting things that I'm writing about is just how I mean, there are the famous superstitions that go with Russian launches that I'm sure your listeners know that the, the, the peeing Pee on the tire. Yes. <laughs> but it's not just the bit, I mean, the day before you have the Russian Orthodox priest performs a ceremony at, on yes. the rocket, and the rocket is blessed, and the press are blessed. The same uh, man, when they put the astronauts into the Soyuz capsule, has Closed that capsule since Gagarin, the same guy. Oh wow! And uh, that it never And he's getting very old now. <laughs> but they have they have the ways of yeah. doing things, these sort of rituals and these ways of doing things, just so nothing changes. All
2: right, quick question it, for yes. you: Is you're going to be involved in this, getting the the unusual snippets? Yeah. That we all love. Yeah. Did Valentina Tereshkova pee on it then? Well, I <laughs> I've been. <laughs> if tra- so, how? Yeah,
0: exactly. I've been trying to work. I've been trying to find some information about that, that uh, but uh, also we should ask i'm sure i know to, i think i know do the they answer have a little, to yeah and little i can't and remember they, who told me they have a little pot yes, and they, yes they have a yes they have a little, a little pot thing. and they pour it on oh Yes, <laughs> that's what the women do. They have well, a little, little a sort little of tube, bit
2: like a sample at the doctor's yeah. surgery. We oh. could,
0: I'll ask next time. I'll ask. What is um, extraordinary? I know. We got someone. diverted onto this, but what is extraordinary? It's what people want to know. Yeah. People want to ex- know. What how do you It's extraordinary. They get all those the suits on, yeah. which are not easy to get on, as you yeah. as you know. You've done a lot on, on space suits. They do all these air checks and check for check everything's fine and all the rest of it. They have the the little box with the uh, the respirator, the air conditioning unit. They get on the bus and then halfway along the journey to the, to the launch pad, yeah. they'll get off get the off bus, and, yeah. take, undo the space suit, pee, <laughs> on right. the, pee on the wheels and get back on the yeah, bus yeah, yeah, again. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, the, the suiting up they do in front of the press. Yeah. I guess a lot of it is it's like not, you say, ceremony, isn't it? A lot it? of it yeah. is
2: ceremony. And to me, it seems more like entertainment. <laughs> and, right, and a
0: little bit yeah. of that. There is a
2: little, a there is a little,
0: there is a little show. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I was think I was talking about that as well, thinking about that as well. You know, the countdown, the famous NASA countdowns, the 10 to 0, which the Russians don't do at all. This is purely an American thing. But the first countdown was in the Fritz Lang film, The Woman in the Moon, where they did this countdown. And, of course, they did that countdown, nothing to do with rocket technology, but it was an editing technique by Fritz Lang to make the film more exciting, to build up the tension. And that idea from filmmaking has sort of carried into, into... the 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 world of of human space travel which I love I think it's yeah. a great there you go. There's a little fact for you. Yeah, because yeah, we don't do the we don't do the countdown at the European Space Agency. We, no, we do the commentary. ESA don't do countdowns. No. We follow the Russians. It's always funny when you listen back to the NASA one when they do the countdown. They usually get it wrong because <laughs> they've had to work out. They've had to work backwards exactly. when it's supposed to launch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't necessarily launch exactly when it's supposed to. No, no, no. It is. It's it's to ramp up the tension, which yeah. is good. You need a bit of. Sh- it's a bit, I mean, Apollo was all showbiz. It was all showbiz. <laughs> Not all showbiz, but yeah. a lot of there was a lot of showbiz.
2: Yeah. Well, you're listening to showbiz. This is space muffins. So our guest is TV presenter Dallas Campbell. And, and s- actor. And actor. Former actor. Colby, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and Failed casualty. actor, <laughs> Dallas Campbell. I think he's a Failed, he failed, <laughs> failed, failed he to launch. <laughs> <laughs> what?
0: I could have been a contender.
2: And still to come, could the dream of flying to the other side of the world in just a couple of hours ever become a reality?
0: You can find Space Buffins on Facebook and Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. And I can confirm that the James Webb Space Telescope will be launched on an Ariane 5.
2: Oh, thank you.
0: In November, I was in Sydney, Australia, for the BBC Future World Changing Ideas Summit. And one of my guests on stage was Michael Smart, who has the rather cool title of Professor of Hypersonic Propulsion at the University of Queensland. He's leading a team developing a scramjet satellite launch system called Spartan. Well, now, a scramjet is an air-breathing engine, a bit like a jet. It doesn't have any moving parts, though, and only works at speeds of Mark five or more. That's 5,000 kilometres per hour. Well, I chatted to Michael outside the venue, overlooking Sydney Harbour, where I asked him to talk me through how this multi-stage launcher would work. The first stage would be
1: a rocket system that would be quite a large booster. But we've been working with some small companies recently uh, uh, by the name of Heliac, an Australian droid and robot, and they've come up with a system where once the rocket booster has finished its job, we deploy wings and a small propeller, and we actually just fly it back to base because it's basically just a big tin can. It's very light, and it really it's be like a sort of a small ugly aircraft on its way back. But okay, so that would be the first stage booster. The second stage would be our scramjet. So that's our very sleek, uh, hypersonic aircraft, has air-breathing scramjet engines, and it would then accelerate from Mach, Mach 5 up to Mach 10, and nestled on the back of our scramjet, we would have a very small third stage. So the third stage would be the only part of the system that's expendable, um, weighs perhaps or 12% of the mass of the whole system. And that's a a little rocket, almost like a little missile stuck on the top. Yes, exactly, and a very standard piece of uh, technology. And that little rocket would be launched off the back of the Spartan, the scramjet-powered vehicle. The scramjet vehicle would then turn around and fly back to base and land right next to the launch pad, so it could be used again uh, very easily. Uh, The final stage would then accelerate up into low-Earth orbit and then release the satellite for use. And that, that small rocket would be lost... But compared to the current systems, where we basically throw away ninety-eight
0: percent of the system, it makes a lot of sense. Could you put people in this? I mean, could you realise the dream of flying people from? It's always London to Sydney, Sydney to London. For some reason, it's always those two capitals. That you put people in these, you can do it in, in a couple of hours. You, you could,
1: but I think it, it would it would have to be a bigger system than what we envisage. Like a system to put like a hundred kilogram satellite into space. It's really a system that would only be about say the size of a a Boeing 737, so about 20 to 25 metres in length. A system that would carry uh, passengers would be probably two or three times bigger than that. And it's just a a much bigger development project. I think if we can prove scramjets out as a useful technology for putting satellites into space, well then there'll be other ideas of how to use those scramjets. And and flying Sydney to London may be one of those. And with Spartan, you want that to be an Australian launch system. Could, Could it happen? I think it could happen. It's not... The, the thing about the way people think about space is that it's going to be some enormous system like the Apollo rocket, you know, you know, 150 metres high, some massive system like the space shuttle. But this system for launching small satellites is really quite small. It's really not a massive project that's going to require billions and billions of dollars uh, to develop. And so I think because of the smaller scale, I think it is something that a country like Australia could easily do. And it's the sort of thing that we should be doing. You've got further testing
0: work coming up. And this is at Woomera, which is this famous uh, rocket test facility. Well, I call it a facility. It's basically a, a desert in the, in the middle of absolutely nowhere. And, and famously for Britain, it's where the Prospero satellite, Britain's only satellite launched on its own launcher, w- was uh, fired from in 1971. Yeah, so, yeah, so Woomera, the Woomera
1: site still exists, as you say. It's basically a big patch of nothing, which is the advantage because, you know, you, don't want to, uh, you want to have a large area for things to go wrong. But, yeah, in the 60s and early 70s, there was a fully-fledged space centre there. Um, it's not really there anymore. You can imagine after 50 or so years, it's, it's sort of faded away. But we do test our scramjets from Woomera, and we've done uh, six or seven launches from there over the last couple of years, and we're planning to do uh, many more. For this project, the Spartan project, and for other other things as well. And how big are they at the moment? I mean, give us a sense of what, what that's like. Yeah, so our current scramjets, they're about a meter and a half, two meters long. Our current ones, we're working on a flight about Mach 8, and our payload, so the scramjet powered payload, weighs about 120, 150 kilograms. So when you develop new technology, you try to do it in the most cost effective way possible. And so we're basically flying the smaller scramjets that we think we can work. And we'll learn from that, and then we'll go on to bigger things which are more practical. So at the moment, it's like the best ever radio-controlled plane. Exactly. In fact, it's, that's exactly what it is. Though I, I must say, we tend to you know, not have someone sitting there with a joystick controlling it. We tend to like, program it to do a certain thing, press the button, and off it's going. And then we collect the data from the test.
0: And what sort of time scale are you looking at?
1: So we're looking over the next um, five years that we could develop a system like Spartan to the point where we could think about a commercial entity.
0: Would you ever fly in one?
1: <laughs> um, I'd fly in a scramjet. It's the rocket part I'd be worried about. <laughs> the the scramjet's like flying in a big, con- like in a very fast Concorde. You know, once it's up there and flying, no problem. It's getting to Mach five. Um, that's probably the most dangerous part.
2: Michael Smart, professor of hypersonic propulsion at the University of Queensland. I've got a question for you actually, Richard. <laughs> um, <walking> out, <laughs> so how does this scramjet differ from the one that Alan Bond has been working with at Reaction Engines?
0: Ah, see, now well, is that's it, not I can't answer this. Rocket, though, it? No. So Skylon is a single stage to orbit, which no one has done. No. Which would be phenomenal. Is it going to be done by? Is, is Skylon going to happen? Because it's one of those things that we've yeah. been talking about for a long time. Um, and I'm always like, come on. Frankly, if he had the money, I think it could happen. You know, if if he had the sort well, of, in theory, it'll it'll definitely work. Well, he's so, got though, a
2: huge amount of extra money. Recently he's got a, a reasonable amount of money, money,
0: but not to build Skylon, to develop the engines, but not to build mm. Skylon. Right. So, yeah, absolutely, Skylon could happen. It's absolutely feasible. European Space Agency have signed off and said this could work. So you just need a load of money. I mean, basically, you know, if you have got a load of money, That's what give I it to reaction yeah. engines. I think we, yeah. All, yeah. Need, we all need a load of money. So uh, this he was never in Holby City. <laughs> <Yeah>. Actually, um, <laughs> yeah. this, this is this <laughs> is this is different. This is a multi stage to orbit. So, as Michael explained, you've got the first stage, which is conventional sort of rocket but reusable the second stage you get up to mark five second stage takes over that's the scramjet takes it into space and the third stage takes it into orbit so it's, it's a neat way of using scramjets because what yeah. you're saying they've, they've known about scramjets for years we've they're been really banging cool. all about scramjets yeah but for they're,
2: they're rubbish because
0: you, they don't work until it get to mark five
2: but they'll be fine for putting satellites yeah. in orbit so
0: that's the problem with scramjets they've had this great technology but no one's known how to use it yeah so this should be a use for it, but again, well, Michael Smart needs a load of money. So, you know, <laughs> so and I, but I wonder. A, I mean, if if you a common theme here. If, if you've got a single straight to orbit vehicle versus a, a multi-staged vehicle. Is one better than the other? I mean, if, oh, if Skylon, if Skylon if Sky, fly, that, me, that, that would be the best. Be oh, the... by, I mean both will reduce, both would massively reduce the amount of putting stuff in space, which yeah. is the big issue at the moment because rockets. It's are always been a big issue since so the dawn of the space. This actually. would bring it down, but yeah, absolutely, Skylon yeah. could revolutionise putting stuff in orbit, people in orbit. I remember when I was a kid, um, was it Hotel? Is that what it was called? Yeah, Hotel. it's yeah. the same one well, that was Alan yeah, Bond. Yeah. There's a model at, yeah. there is just, at the British Infantasy just, just around the corner. Yeah. And uh, I, I remember getting very, very excited about that. And then after about five years, getting very disappointed mm. and slightly mm. angry that it hadn't happened. The, <laughs> by the promise of, um, yeah. of Hey, listen, tra- I'm still Australia waiting for now.
2: flying cars. <laughs> Damn them, yes. <laughs> yeah. I must admit, Richard, I didn't think there was any need for you to say that you were doing your interview overlooking Sydney Harbour. I found... <laughs>
0: personally that I gratuitous that, use yeah,
2: of location. Very gratuitous mm. and just to rub salt into the wounds. But um, while you are at Sydney, though, there was uh, an astronaut there at uh, this... World Changing Ideas Summit, and it was... Don't say that
0: so disparagingly. I'm trying not to
2: sound bitter, but I'm failing really dismally. And it was Ron Garan, former fighter pilot. He spent 177 days in orbit. I am quite jealous that you got to meet this guy, actually. Uh, And that was during two missions to the International Space Station. And he's also done four spacewalks and can claim to be the first to attempt to order a pizza delivery from orbit. Um, It didn't arrive, by the way.
0: Well, he's now chief pilot at balloon company Worldview, as well as flying experiments to the edge of space using balloons. Uh, The company is building stratolites. Now, these will fly in the stratosphere. The idea is to compete with satellites. Worldview is also developing the Voyager capsule, designed to carry space tourists on a mission high above the Earth. And sitting in the commander's chair as you bob along
4: beneath a balloon across the top of the atmosphere will be Ron Garan. Well, for me, you know, I left NASA really for one reason. I left NASA so that I can share this perspective of our planet, a perspective that I call the orbital perspective, full-time and unencumbered. So everything I've done since leaving NASA was done with the motivation to figuratively transport people to a higher vantage point, to figuratively transport people to a vantage point where they could see our upon it a little differently. So I wrote the book called The Orbital Perspective. I'm working on a full-length feature documentary called Orbital. I, I, <laughs> I started painting, and I, you know, I, I paint pictures of that perspective and try and capture the emotion. But I saw that there was an opportunity with Worldview to not just figuratively transport people, I could literally transport people to a higher vantage point. And I think there's something in the experience about, you know, how long you've been there. You know, the, what is the duration of the experience? How long did you were you able to just look at this scene and take it all in? And there was something really enticing to have a five-hour mission where, you know, over the course of hours, in a very comfortable environment, very relaxed environment, uh, very gentle environment, you can take in this incredible view of our planet. I think for a lot of people that's going to be... You know, a very, very transformative experience. And I think you know, the other commercial spaceflight activities like Virgin Galactic where you know, they'll be launching in a rocket, um, I think that's going to be an incredible experience too. Um, and I think weightlessness, the, you know, the, the, the brief periods of weightlessness that will be experienced will be a profound part of that. But I think it's going to be somewhat challenging in a five-minute or you know, in an in a, in a experience that lasts minutes versus hours to, to really take it all in.
0: Now, you've written uh, in your book, and other people have said this, that you can articulate what it's like to be in space, but if you can actually fly influential people into space, give them that perspective, they're the people that can actually change the world. I mean, do you see that as something that you will do with this particular project? You know, fly world leaders or fly musicians, artists, you know, people who can articulate that, but also more than that, actually
4: put that into action. Right. We want to fly people who are make, making a difference in the world, and we want to fly people who can best communicate that experience to others so that they will be motivated and inspired to make a difference in the world. And so you know, we've to date taken engineers and scientists and pilots to space. Imagine what will happen when we take poets and musicians and artists. You know, how much better will they be at communicating this experience to the rest of us? And to basically communicate the reality of the world that we live in. The reality of the world that we live in is that we all live on a bio, you know, this iridescent biosphere teeming with life. That we're all deeply interconnected, deeply interdependent. And all of these boundaries and borders that we see all around us, all these, they're all self-constructed. They're all artificial. They're, they're all false filters that we put on ourselves. And that really limits our ability to progress as a species. That really limits our ability to problem-solve. And I think the more people that see the true reality of the world that we live in, the better off we're all going to be. So would you, for
0: example, fly President-elect Donald Trump or Vladimir Putin, leaders of India, Pakistan, those sorts of people? People that actually have power.
4: Yeah, I mean, there's, we don't have any plans to do that, but that is a great idea. We want to take as many people who will make the biggest difference uh, as we can. Now, you've written
0: an open letter to, to Donald Trump as, as president-elect.
4: What are your concerns? My concern is that we live in a biosphere teeming with life, and what happens on one side of the planet affects the other side of the planet. And there have been some say, things said during the campaign that I find make, make me very nervous, like you know pulling out of the COP21 you know, Paris climate agreement. And I think that would be disastrous... It's obviously dis- be disastrous uh, for the world in the long term, but it would also be disastrous for, for the U.S. as a nation, because I think that it will show that our words mean nothing, that we've made a commitment, and now we're pulling out of the world community. And um, in his commencement address, pres- oh, not his commencement address, but his acceptance speech, his victory speech, he said that he wanted not only to be the president for all Americans, but he wanted to tell the world... That we, you know, seek seek to to work together, and we don't seek conflict, and we don't seek to be hostile. But if we pull out of the Paris Climate Agreement, you know, that to me would be a hostile act. And uh, so that was one of, one of the things. I'm just very concerned. It's been a rough couple of years in the United States, and it was a rough election, and we have a very fractured, very divisive country right now. And so the open letter was an attempt to just be one voice among many that are calling for unification, are calling to come together to, to not only work as one American people, but to work as one American people in the context of the rest of the world. And I think that's really important. There is an argument that
0: actually this could be good for NASA, having President Trump, particularly if you're talking about Make America Great Again, for space exploration, for for big missions to, to the moon or commitment to, to go to Mars.
4: Yeah, I, I don't know about that, but what I do know is that every time there's a, a change in administration, we completely scrap what the last administration did and start, and start a new plan. And so the space business is a long-term business. It's, you have to be very, very strategic. You have to think way down the road. When President Obama came in, he scrapped the moon program. You know, President Bush had a plan for a long-term permanent human presence on the moon. And we scrapped that, and we went to, to a different plan. And now there's a new president coming in. We're going to scrap, you know, going to Mars. And, or you know i don't know if we're going to scrap going to mars but we're going to we're going to have a new plan and i don't understand the reason why why this is but there is a political desire to come up with a new plan every time the administration changes and that's a really big mistake do
0: you think though there is a role for the new private enterprises coming up i mean you're you work for for worldview you've also got you know spacex you've got likes of Virgin Galactic looking at at space tourism. There are more opportunities, perhaps, now?
4: Yeah, I think the more we can turn operations in low-Earth orbit and now turn operations in the upper atmosphere, which is completely an untapped area of our planet, the more of those operations that can be turned over to commercial activities, the more the big government space agencies, not just NASA, but all around the world, can focus on what they're chartered to do in the first place, which is exploration which seeing what's over the next hill, getting out of low earth orbit and starting to explore the solar system.
0: Chief pilot at Worldview, Ron Garan, who I also interviewed overlooking Sydney <laughs> Harbour.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, you cow. <laughs> so, so, uh, um, how do you feel, Dallas, about the, the situation in America at the moment in terms regarding space?
0: well it, I, I mean Ron pretty much said it all it's, it 's you know space business is a long term thing, and the problem is you 're always going to be at the mercy of political cycles and Unfortunately, political cycles are very short they are four or eight years whereas big space missions are a lot longer than that. Uh, he mentioned uh, the constellation which was cancelled by Obama, that had all kinds of exciting things and space vehicles and plans to go to the to the moon and then onwards. And that got hobbled, of course, uh, and so we, we're waiting. And the one thing we do know about Trump is that he is nothing if not unpredictable. So God only knows <laughs> what's going to happen. I mean, you know, the the whole NASA thing is the journey to Mars now, and they've got their new launch vehicle being built, the SLS and the Orion capsule. Is that is is Mars going is Mars going to be on Trump's radar? Is it going to be a massive vanity project for Donald Trump? Who knows? Who knows? I mean, it's all up in the air. I know there is a lot of Concern about about um, h- him pulling out of uh, NASA's uh, climate research. Again, these are all. But we'll, we'll, I guess we'll we'll know on uh, in next week on the twentieth of uh, God. It's soon, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> when it, next week, isn't it? When he gets sworn in? Yeah. me. but yeah, who knows is the answer. But no, he was absolutely right. I think for for tourism though, his point about um, uh, about edge of space ballooning is a good one. Um, why do something like a suborbital 20-minute t- flight when you can go up on a balloon, which is presumably a lot safer and a lot easier and a lot cheaper? Yeah, I think it's inherently and, and safe. If you, it's, just, if, yeah. you, if you just want the experience, then going up to the stratosphere, like um, Joe Kittinger famously did in, in the 1950s, up to the very top of the atmosphere, and you get that wonderful that wonderful overview effect, um, which is what space tourism is all about, I suspect. You don't get the weightlessness, sadly, No, but you're but, only getting a few minute seconds of weightlessness yeah. I, I just think this is so there's so much more to this I think yes. it is uh, and I, I should mm-hmm. say that Vo- uh worldview is not the only company doing it. it's zero to infinity I think yeah. so, other balloons are available, other balloons are available. <laughs> yeah absolutely very good you, you, you should, you should you be should on be tv yeah. well funny funny that uh yeah but no I I've, I think I've always I was always very very excited by the Joe Kittinger story, for those who don't know the Joe Kittinger story, when they were doing uh, lots of tests on physiology and the, and the stratosphere and spacesuit tests in the 1950s, they sent Joe and others up to the very edge on these on these huge balloons in our unpressurized uh, vehicles. And this is harking back to that. And I think there's something, especially for tourists, I think that that's a pretty, a pretty special thing to, to, to go on. And, And just from an engineering point of view, I think a lot easier, as we've seen, than um, trying to develop a a chemical-fueled launch vehicle, which which is a world of pain.
2: But then huge balloons taking passengers don't, Exactly, inspire confidence well, in some people when they think of history.
0: This is well. This is true, and also we should say that those balloons are not going into space. Uh Virgin Galactic and and Blue Origin and others they are crossing the Kármán line, the the hundred kilometer line. Whereas a balloon, you're only you're going up to a hundred thousand feet. Uh, there's a big, big difference. So you you're not going to get your astronaut wings in a balloon, but you're above ninety nine percent of the atmosphere. You look up and it's black. You'll see the curve, etc. So
2: I don't know. I I would love... I would jump at the opportunity to go up in a. Even if, uh, I, I want to go to Space Full Stop, but a space balloon would be, you know... A, a balloon like that would be, for me, yeah. that would be a Is nice first go. No, yeah. it, would be, it would be my starter trip. Um, would you go up on
0: one? Absolutely. I'd go up in a shot... Um, I nightly pray that someone <laughs> invites me up. But I, I mean, something like Virgin Galactic, it's so prohibitively expensive as well. I mean, obviously, I mean, I, I don't know how much it costs. It's about it?
2: $250,000. Oh, in right? that
0: case, it's fine. I will go twice. Um, oh, the Virgin Galactic is, yeah, 250000 I think it's gone up, actually, recently, it has. hasn't it? Yeah. I think
2: when Wally Funk, um, mm. who's from the Mercury 13, I think... When Wally originally bought her ticket, it was two hundred thousand yeah. dollars. she's number one hundred and sixteen on the list, Josh. but she's hoping she's getting a bit annoyed actually because she's pretty sure that some people have died already waiting, so she feels right. she should have gone up. Well, what about when the people who bought? What about the people? But who, it, it did when it go up fifty grand.
0: It, so she'll she won't be in the first group that goes up. She'll be
2: no. I think she's trying front. to. Um, she won't mind me saying this, but I would say pull the rope. Pull the age card. OK. <laughs> Come on. Time's, yeah, time's yeah. marching on. But she's hoping that, A, she knows that some people have died and also mm. that some people, she is pretty sure, yeah. will not be physically fit enough because you no. do, as part of your training, have to go on a centrifuge. And as both of us have done centrifuges... I've I done the same got, one, yeah, probably OV, the one at, uh, in, Far- a, in a housing estate. Yes, yeah.
0: Bizarrely in a housing yeah. estate. Yeah, it didn't used to be. And it, it's, <laughs> it's not, really you know... It's just that they built the housing estate well, this, around it's it. It's not <laughs>
2: everyone's cup of tea. You're Actually, that's one thing. If you want a laugh, find the Space boffins where we did that episode yeah. because... I took to it like a duck to water. I absolutely loved it and wanted, you know, like a kid, higher, higher, faster, faster. What did you go up Richard to? screamed like a
0: girl. I was, I was, ta- <laughs> I was with Richard. I was rubbish. Oh, oh I, so Yeah. No, terrifying. I was like one,
2: one point. Yeah. You know, oh, I, went to, yeah. I went to like three point four, and I was happy to. That's yeah, next level. You know, like, you've, yeah. got, you've
0: got the right stuff. Yeah, yeah we clearly haven't. <laughs> you've got, the, you've got it. It's a nice gentle balloon for us. So here's the thing with space tourism. It's like, what do you want? Do you want to actually have that overview experience? That's like transcendental experience in which case my advice is go by balloon if you want bragging rights to say i've crossed the line i've been over a 100k yeah. i've done it I'm, a fit- I'm, an I'm an astronaut virgin galactic if money's no object you've got to go orbital and you've got to buy the, the middle soyuz seat yeah for which 50 go up, million. yeah they go up every year as well don't they they're back in the tourist game are they i don't know the company the is still around i can't remember well, what the company's ad- called space adventures yeah yeah so they're still around isn't it, it must be yeah. still be selling seats it's because no one's got to spare 50, $50 million. It's a heck of a lot. Well, I'll tell turn... And it's got to be spare. You know, you could be worth $50 million, but you've got to have a million, sort of worth long 50 million. Million dollars.
2: <laughs> well, look, thank you, Great Dallas pleasure. Campbell, for uh, coming on to Space Boffins and to the uh, British Interplanetary Society for hosting us in their amazing. Library. Space Boffins is a Boffin media production supported by the Atrium Space
0: Insurance Consortium. Do follow us on Facebook and Twitter, it'll be worth your while. We've been Sue Nelson and Richard Hollingham. Thanks for listening.